Welcome to the eighth episode of Coronavirus The Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. Together, we also host the Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin the show uh, with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What should our listeners know about the week that was? Jeremy, as we discussed in last Monday's show, the number of people with this coronavirus will rise every week until we have a vaccine or major herd immunity, neither of which is on the near horizon. As such, this week and for the near future, the number of deaths will increase and have increased at a relatively constant rate. Death is always tragic, but the 12,000 or so individuals who succumb every seven days is predictable in a virus that has approximately a two to five times higher mortality than the flu. When the president talked yesterday about 100,000 to 200,000 deaths, it was old news. It's exactly what we said on this show two months ago. The four biggest news items this week were one, the beginning of social distancing easing. Two, the magnitude of the financial impact of the coronavirus. Three, the great but most likely excessive enthusiasm for use of the antiviral drug remdesivir, and four, new data from Taiwan released today on transmissibility of the virus. Let me talk about each. In terms of social distancing, although a couple of states like Georgia are trying to move very fast, and others like New York and California are taking tiny baby steps, most geographies are selecting a middle ground, reopening small businesses, requiring six-foot distancing and some degree of mask protection. We can expect that the easing of social distancing will increase the number of cases and elevate the number of deaths three to four weeks from now. However, with the caution being used, the total number of patients needing critical care should remain below the total supply, which was the reason we started social distancing nearly two months ago. Much of what will happen over the next few months will depend on how closely people adhere to the recommendations state agencies and governors are providing. In many geographies, people's impatience has reached a crisis level. And once the gates are raised, even so slightly, people may go beyond what is allowed. And if that happens, we could see a second wave later this summer with higher mortality rates than today. The financial markets did not do as well this week as the medical world. Businesses fared worse than predicted, but technology companies that have been anticipated to do well, given the added demand for their products, reporting erosion of earnings due to the virus raising their costs. Warren Buffett, the famed CEO of Berkshire Hathaway, reported that the company had lost 
$50 billion in the first quarter, and they did not see any great bargains. Unemployment hit an all-time high. What remains to be seen is where this downturn is going. Some of the reductions in staff may be strategic moves that companies had planned to do in the future anyway, and they were seizing the crisis to accomplish it now. If that's the case, by a year from now, the economy should be doing much, much better than today. Alternatively, what we may be seeing is earnings and unemployment as lagging indicators of month-to-month decreases in demand for products. If that's the case, the bottom could be a long way in the future, with the recession lasting far longer than people imagine. The third and fourth quarter GDP results and unemployment numbers should provide some clarity. To the third item, Rundisavir, Gilead's antiviral medication, remains a complex and controversial story. As we discussed in a prior episode, the drug was most recently considered for use in patients with Ebola and proved disappointing. It has more recently been touted as a potential drug to treat the sickest of patients with COVID-19. Data was released by the company this week on the first trial that involved a double-blind research study. And the headline was that this drug had significantly shortened hospital stay. But there are as many question marks as answers about this study. First, the criterion for success was changed during the study itself, which is frowned on by research experts. Second, although the patients who received the drug did have a shorter stay on average, the mortality in the two groups was identical. This had been the original study point of comparison, and the disappointing results that were found in this study were similar to the findings published from China on that nation's experience. The best hope is that remdesivir may turn out to be a slightly useful drug, but the magnitude of the difference it makes is likely to be extremely small, and most people will be disappointed once the details become clear. Americans are looking for a miracle. Nothing that exists today or is likely to become available this year fits that description, including this medication. And it's possible that the drug remdesivir may prove, from a medical perspective, to be a complete bust, although its financial success is almost guaranteed by the hype surrounding it. Rabbi, a nation-leading think tank, including experts from the Center for Infectious Disease and Research Policy, released their most recent predictions about COVID-19. They said, one, this new coronavirus is likely to keep spreading until 60 to 70 percent of the population has had it, or in other words, one to two years. Even under the best circumstances, people will continue to die this fall and winter, possibly with a second big wave happening. And to quote their conclusion, the idea that this is going to be done soon defies microbiology. Do you concur? Jeremy, I was thrilled to read this study released last week. This is what we've been telling audiences on coronavirus the truth for the past eight weeks. Although researchers and clinicians still don't have all the medical questions answered, it's becoming clearer by the week that this is a relatively predictable virus. Put an infected person in a room with a bunch of people and three others will become infected. Put that person in a tightly packed arena or conference room and dozens will become sick. 
Make them wear a mask and stay six feet from others, and about one other person will become sick. Similarly, if two or 300 people become sick this week, on the average, one will die. Make that two or 300 in a nursing home, and 20 or 30 will die. Make that two or 300 school children, and the chance of anyone dying is extremely small. Overall, require moderately strong social distancing and transmission of the disease will slow. Ease social distancing anytime before there's a vaccine and both number of cases and deaths will rise. Of course, we still don't know whether warmer weather will make a difference, if the virus will mutate, or for how long or to what degree our body's antibodies will be effective. But overall, what's happening today is identical to what we said on our first show in mid-March, and I'd be surprised if much changes for the rest of this year. Putting your business school hat on, uh, can you expand on your comments about the most recent unemployment and GDP numbers? Jeremy, in the same way that the medical numbers have been predictable, so have the financial. Unemployment is climbing, and no one should expect it to come down rapidly in the near future. The gross domestic product shrunk at its fastest pace since the 2008 recession. Small businesses and retail are huge financial engines for the U.S. Over the past two months, they've been handcuffed and forced to close. As such, just like the medical results, the financial numbers are exactly what we would have predicted. Let's go back to a theme we talked about in the first episode. If the shelter at home and business closures are tactics to buy time until hospitals can stock up with enough protective gear for its people and sufficient testing kits to determine whether symptomatic people are infected, then great work has happened and the valve can now be slowly opened. If by contrast, these measures were designed to be paths to eliminate the virus and they were implemented with the belief that by doing so, our nation could avoid a rise in the number of people infected once social distancing was eased, then that approach was not only bad science, but also poor strategy. If our nation expects to contain the virus through social distancing, then we need to be prepared to continue the current approach for an additional 12 to 18 months, if not longer. And if that's the plan, then Congress should be discussing legislation closer to an eight or even $10 trillion number, not the current three to $4 trillion relief efforts that have been passed or are in the pipeline. Moreover, if that's the thinking, we will need to shut up businesses for over a year. And if we do that, the United States will see unemployment reach 40 or 50 million and double digit unemployment will last for several years, since when the restrictions are lifted, there won't be jobs for those laid off and furloughed to begin again. The sooner our country acknowledges this reality, the better. Robbie, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention added six symptoms to its coronavirus list this week. What were they and what do you make of this step? Jeremy, this virus can manifest itself in many different ways. However, most commonly it begins like other viruses and extremely similar to the flu. As such, in addition to fever, cough, and shortness of breath, the CDC added chills, muscle pains that doctors call myalgias, headache, and sore throat. 
In addition, it formerly included two unique symptoms that increasingly are being seen, a new loss of taste or a new loss of smell. A multinational European study found that between 80 and 90% of patients who tested positive for COVID-19 had taste and smell dysfunction. Similarly, an Iranian study found loss of smell in 76% of patients, many before the appearance of any other symptom. The good news is that almost all patients, both the sense of smell and taste return once the infection is over. Physicians predict that fatigue will be the next symptom added to the CDC list. Patients often become tired when they are infected with any virus. But in my conversation with people who have recovered from COVID-19, they describe the fatigue as overwhelming and long-lasting. Even getting from their bed to the bathroom proves exhausting. I know you did your medical school at Yale and keep up with their research. Uh, this week, researchers from the school reported on a new saliva test for the coronavirus. How does it differ from the nasal swabs that have been used so far? I find this study one of the most encouraging findings since this pandemic began. As we discussed last week, every policy expert and media pundit talks about testing, but fewer acknowledging the issues with the current nasal swab and fewer still have a clear strategic plan to translate the testing results into a comprehensive action plan. Last week, we talked about the saliva test developed by researchers at Rutgers, and now Yale has a comparable one. And its preliminary data shows the oral test to predict and identify coronavirus infection more consistently than the nasal one. The nasal swab test is accurate and relatively rapid from a laboratory perspective, but obtaining the swab is very painful and few individuals will go through it again to say nothing about twice a week for the next year. Moreover, the number of healthcare workers needed to test the majority of the American population doesn't exist and won't anytime soon. And finally, with people being able to transmit the virus before symptoms, waiting for them to develop before testing will miss a huge number of people, particularly given that the swab fails to identify the virus in 15 to 30% of cases. Phrased differently, the nasal swab test is very helpful when people come to the ER and doctors want to immediately know whether they should take extreme precautions to protect themselves. But as a mass screening tool and an approach to containment, it can't work. As an example, two studies have documented the large number of infected people who are asymptomatic. The military, of course, is one place where people can be ordered to have the test performed, and half of the soldiers on the Theodore Roosevelt aircraft carrier who tested positive for the coronavirus were without symptoms. Similarly, on the Diamond Princess cruise ship, 18% of positive cases were asymptomatic. The best solution is broad testing of the entire population. A saliva-based test, theoretically, could be done by everyone at home twice a week, followed by aggressive self-quarantine, including delivery of food and free housing to individuals if it's needed for the following two weeks. Hopefully, researchers will find a way to speed up the processing of the saliva tests. Today, they take two to three days, but it could be done far more rapidly. And hopefully, higher test volumes will bring down the current 
$65 to $90 cost per test to an affordable level. However, the saliva testing for active infection could be a game changer in how our nation addresses this virus. And compared to the trillions of dollars the current legislative approaches are requiring, this could be a bargain. We'll keep listeners informed. Germany continues to both control the infection and maintain its economy better than the United States and other European nations. What, what is Germany doing? Germany has a population of about a fourth of the U.S., but a mortality of only one-tenth. This translates into about 79 deaths per million inhabitants, compared to 191 for the U.S., 364 for France, and 463 for Italy. Simultaneously, Germany has seemingly imposed some of the fewest restrictions on social distancing, and yet the number of new cases is a fourth of what they were back in April. I credit the country with taking a strategic approach. Health and political leaders look for every opportunity to diminish spread without completely shattering their businesses and schools. As an example, yellow ribbons pass down the stairwells of their schools so that students going up are kept from those coming down. Germany has reopened its schools but split the classes into multiple sections with staggered hours, staggered research, and six-foot distancing. I think of their approach as intentionality. Every restriction is measured for its impact, and the highest-yield ones with the fewest limitations are implemented. Germany's success provides direction for how the U.S. can move towards greater normalcy while minimizing the spread. The key lesson is that the U.S. is not just behind Germany in the number of testing kits, but the U.S. is also behind Germany in the strategic thinking required to battle this pandemic. Jeremy, we've talked on this show about the economic consequences of COVID-19, particularly for small businesses. Today, let's shift to a different question. As the voice of the patient on our Fixing Healthcare podcast, what are you hearing from those at greatest risk, especially the elderly and people with multiple chronic disease? What I'm hearing from seniors I know and from my friends that are, you know, family members that are seniors is that, especially with older people, they tend to be much more content and understanding of the social distancing and staying at home overall throughout the duration of the pandemic, especially since many are already retired. That being said, they also understand the damage being done on the economy right now and want younger and healthier people to be able to get back to work. One interesting aspect of the elderly is that many of them rely on their religious community via church, synagogue, or anything else as their social network, their community of friends. And now they don't have that. And they may not be as comfortable with technology as a way to communicate as, say, younger people are. Uh, this brings me to an interesting question. Robbie, my sister is a pastor, and she and many other religious leaders across the country are facing many difficult questions right now. Uh, I was talking to her for a little bit yesterday, and she had explained to me doing a funeral with social distancing and masks and a limited number of attendees while only doing uh, the outside portion of the service. 
She also told me that uh, even though in many places churches are being allowed to open, pastors don't know if that's the right thing to do right now. These congregations often have a large amount of seniors who would be at higher risk. Uh, She said many of her friends that are also religious leaders are being pressured by their community to open and resume normal service. She said many of them have even heard that singing uh, close to others might be extra dangerous. So perhaps when they do open, they wouldn't maybe not have songs even. What advice do you have for religious leaders across the country about how and when to start holding in-person services again? My belief, specific to the coronavirus, is that people should understand the risks that exist and on that basis make their own decisions rather than trying to have a one-size-fits-all or specific approach to a given question. So let's look at what you're asking. Some of the congregation are at very high risk. They're over 80. They have multiple chronic diseases. If they catch this virus, their chances of dying can be as high as one in six. They need to be very protected. The safest way, of course, is to keep them home, seeing the service through video. Alternatively, they could come to the church, but sit at a great distance away from others, not just six feet, but maybe 10 or 12 feet, maybe sitting in the balcony with four or five people. This is the kind of social distancing that will be necessary to do the right things to protect their health. For a lot of other individuals, that degree of social distancing may be excessive, and they could come to a service wearing masks and keeping at least six feet apart. And I want to stress why you wear a mask. You wear a mask, as we said in the show today, because the data says that people can be both asymptomatic and transmit this virus before they have symptoms And in fact, as the study from Taiwan showed, they are actually more likely to transmit the virus early on than later in the disease. Singing, if you've gone to a Broadway show and sat close up to the stage, you see the liquid being propelled out of the individual's mouths when they use their voice to the maximum Singing increases the risk. Masks decrease the risk. Keeping people farther apart allows both to occur. Similar to what we're going to see when the restaurants reopen, I think the religious leaders need to find a middle course, a course that keeps people far enough apart that keeps them wearing masks, that does everything that scientifically is going to bring the risks down and take extra effort for those congregants who are at greatest risk due to age and chronic disease. I think if the pastors understand the issues, they will be able for their particular church or synagogue to find the right path to move forward. 
Jeremy, in last week's show, we made the analogy of the coronavirus to a chess game and pointed out that we have transitioned from the scripted opening moves to the more complex middle game. Over the past week, I've seen a widening of opinion when it comes to the healthcare system. On one hand, I'm seeing more signs thanking healthcare providers, and I've read that the next set of Mattel action figures will be doctors and nurses, in addition to G.I. Joe. At the same time, there's a growing rift between employers and the healthcare industry. When hospitals and insurers drafted a letter imploring Congress to provide bailouts for healthcare, they were surprised that many of the major employers refused to sign on. Although the issues were complex, my sense is that businesses are looking to the future and realizing they won't be able to pay for health care in the years to come as they have in the past. They are once again beginning to put pressure on hospitals and insurance companies to bring down long-term costs. As the businessman in a rural part of the country, where do you come down on this rift? Is the greatest threat that without major additional governmental funding, hospitals and doctors will face economic harm or at the cost of paying for additional funding, will drive up taxes and imperil businesses and individuals. Robbie, I've had the conversation with you and others that this pandemic is essentially holding a magnifying glass to some of the issues that you and others have been talking about in healthcare for a long time. Affordability in healthcare is something that is going to be in that microscope. People are taking huge pay or hours cuts, getting laid off. Businesses won't be able to afford contributing to employee health insurance the same way. Hospitals are making less money and will be making less money. And insurance companies will likely then uh, charge more. I think this is a crisis across the board. I think this is the kind of environment in crisis that may drive some of the change that we need to happen. Uh, I think employers and healthcare consumers will look more and more towards alternative and different models of healthcare, such as capitated or direct primary care. And I think this may start to shift the focus, the, the needed shift in focus on preventative health and helping people maintain good health whole health, if you will. And this would help drive costs down for people and employers as it would prevent expensive things down the road like chronic illness. Uh, people are just going to start demanding cheaper health care. Robbie, as you just mentioned, people seem to be examining the same questions and raising similar concerns about health care going forward as they had in the past. What's happened relative to the electronic health record? The coronavirus pandemic has highlighted both the opportunities provided through comprehensive information and the massive gaps we have between the current technology and what is possible. As an example, critical care physicians across the country are trying to figure out how to manage patients on respirators with this unusual virus. They all understand that the best approach needs to be different than with other pneumonias, but they're not exactly sure what it should be. Imagine if researchers could easily extract information for the tens of thousands of people being treated. We'd have answers much faster than today. Similarly, scientists are trying to understand why the mortality rates vary so much by geography in other parts of the world, even when two countries like Iraq 
and Iran are in close proximity. Possibly there's a genetic basis relative to their populations. Why not study this by comparing communities in different areas of the United States or even subsections of individual cities? It's obvious to everyone that the lack of interoperability of the current systems is a major danger to people. And the fundamental design of these EHRs, one that focuses on maximizing billing, not care delivery, is poor. In response to pressure, some of the larger manufacturers are making access to the data easier for researchers. At the same time, they continue to try to make interoperability impossible as a business strategy. It's one designed to retain current users who might otherwise shift to a competitor or a new technology platform if the data already entered in their current systems could be easily and quickly transferred. From a business perspective, it makes sense, but it costs people's lives. Various states have begun to ease social distancing and others are planning to do so in the near future. When will we know if their efforts have been too rapid as some critics fear? Jeremy, unfortunately, given the current issues with testing, it'll be a month from now. The reason is that we don't have the ability to test a large enough proportion of the population to understand accurately the number of new cases. As importantly, the data on disease incidence doesn't discern if the people getting infected are the ones at greatest risk for needing critical care. As such, our most accurate measure is the number of deaths, and that is what epidemiologists label a lagging indicator. It provides information relative to what happened in the past, not currently. Three things will be needed relative to evaluating the impact of social easing. First, we will need testing preferably an oral swab that can be done by people at home on a frequent basis for an up-to-date estimate of cases. Second, we need a comprehensive database that will require interoperability of the electronic health record, including information from the telehealth visits and the testing results that are being done to determine if our nation has done a good job of protecting the most vulnerable. Finally, we will need a clear strategy for how this information will direct not just what we do today, but the steps we will take in the future. Unfortunately, today, none of the three exist. Your last Forbes article titled Three Coronavirus Facts Americans Must Know Before Returning to Work or School now has over 2.9 million viewers. Why do you think it has been of such great interest? Americans have moved from being overwhelmingly scared to scared and confused. Their original fear was dying. And of course, there remains truly tragic stories of relatively young and healthy individuals who have met this terrible fate, leaving behind children and other loved ones. I don't want to minimize the loss. However, the people I talk with now can't quote the exact mortality from COVID-19, but they recognize it is closer to a bad flu than Ebola or one of the viral pandemics they've seen on TV. Now their worries are broader. They're concerned about their jobs, the education of their children, the social contacts that have become solely virtual, 
and the impact social distancing has had on their relationships. What they want to know is how our nation will march forward. It can't be foolishly, but it also can't be death by a thousand strokes. A good friend called me this weekend to ask if I thought it would be appropriate come May 20th when the shelter-in-place requirements in her state is expected to be lifted for her to fly to see her daughter and granddaughter on the other side of the country. Similar to your question from your sister, the pastor, the truth is there's no single right answer. Patients are used to asking doctors what they should do, whether to take a medication, undergo a surgery, or alter their diet. They may not follow the recommendations, but almost always doctors can explain what they would do if they themselves or their family were in the same situation. Comparing the benefits and risks of two medical alternatives is how doctors are trained. With the coronavirus, the issue is between a physical risk and a psychological one. And medicine has no way to make the comparison. Some in healthcare lean heavily to one side and believe the risk of death must be the sole determinant. Others believe that the economic threats we face and the interpersonal ones are more dangerous. I believe the path can't be either or, but must be both. We err as doctors when we separate the physical from the psychological. They are tightly intertwined. I believe the same is true for this coronavirus pandemic. I welcome the thoughts and perspectives of our listeners. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, FixingHealthCarePodcast.com, and on all podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comments to the host, visit the contact page on our website to send us a message or reach out to us on Twitter or LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and have a great day.